When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I know that this year the focus in this congregation has been on loving. And it seems to me that the theme of loving is actually tied quite closely with the sermon topics that we focused on earlier this month, the ones that dealt with oneness in Christ or unity in Christ. And now, as we move into a somewhat different topic, God's presence, I think that it all ties together. The notion of our call to love one another, along with being one in Christ, And now, as we talk about experiencing the fullness of the presence of God. Our scripture reading for this morning gets to the very heart of what we're about as we strive to live a truly Christian life. As we learn to look at the world, at other people, and even our own lives through the eyes of love, we then begin to experience more deeply the presence of God. On the one hand, it's very true that we are called to be dedicated to what we might call personal holiness. In other words, it is imperative that we nourish an active and growing spiritual life through practices like prayer, devotional time, and Bible study, just to name a few. All of these can be keys to developing the kind of spiritual life we desire. And they are keys to experiencing the love of God as well. Hence, they help us grow in our love for God. And they also make us more aware of the presence of God in our lives. On the other hand, If we did all those things I just mentioned, but we never once took a deep look at our own actions regarding how committed we are to loving our others as ourselves, then it's all for nothing, right? The truth of the Apostle Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians 13 continues to ring out. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing." If I give all my possessions away, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
Our scripture passage for today from the Gospel of Matthew serves as a warning about a spiritual pitfall that we should look out for in our lives of faith. Sometimes, you see, we begin to think that as long as we achieve certain things or do this or that in the name of holiness, in other words, follow all the rules to the T, then we are not only helping to build the kingdom of God, but we are also in full keeping with God's calling for where our hearts should be. But this is a danger for us spiritually. Why? Because we tend to develop blind spots about ourselves, don't we? The question came to Jesus as a challenge for him to decree what rule is the most important one in order for us to live a holy life. The person raising the question probably thought that he had Jesus in a corner. The reality is, we might have all kinds of spiritual gifts, and we might be great at everything under the sun, and we maybe do all the right things that are good and perfect and right consistently, maybe, or so we think. But if we also carry around hatred in our hearts instead of love, then what good does any of our work really do? It's not that doing good works and taking initiative and working hard for the advancement of the kingdom of God is wrong. Far from it. It's crucial that we as members of the body of Christ are committed to doing good works in the name of Christ. But the problem with only doing good works is that it proves itself to be an incomplete approach to living a life of faith. Good works need love, and love needs to be lived out in the form of good works. Even as we experience the loving presence of God more and more in our own lives of faith, we are being called to be the presence of God's love that others will experience as well. This is the reality. And this is our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. Look at Christ himself in the example he set for us. There is nothing lacking in his concern for others or in his action to heal. There is nothing lacking in his love for the lost or in his advocacy to find them. I believe we are called to have a living and growing and organic faith that wipes the noses of little children, gets dirty under the fingernails, and encourages the lonely and the brokenhearted. We are called to a faith that goes out to the homeless, gives bread to the hungry, and lays a caring hand on the forgotten ones. We are called to love with both heart and hands. We are commissioned to love with both mind and soul. And we are set apart to love in both the world and in our own family. Consider this. Should we be concerned with the changing of our own hearts 
so that we will learn within ourselves how to truly love others? Or should we give ourselves over to the hands-on work of God by clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, and healing the sick? If this is the question, then the answer surely is this. Yes, on both accounts. It's not either or, it's both and. This is part of the key to having oneness or unity in Christ. It's also part of the key to experiencing the powerful presence of God. One time, a little over a decade ago, I preached a sermon that I decided to give the title, Zombies. The reason I called it that is because the theme I was working with with was this. I believe it is true what the author of the book of James claims, namely that faith without works is dead. However, I would also add that I believe that works without faith is a zombie. In other words, it is possible to go through the motions and try to be of help to people in the things that we do, but then never really examine our motivations for doing so. Why help people? Why make things better for those who are marginalized, who suffer, who hurt, who are treated unfairly? If we never examine our faith, our beliefs then it's like we are walking around like zombies, not dead, but also not quite alive, doing things, but having no consciousness of why we do those things. There is a reason that we serve people as believers, and the reason is that we believe we have faith that God loves everyone, not just some. You can see how this relates to the theme of having unity in Christ, which is the most recent topic that Pastor Elaine and I have been preaching about. It means that, yes, we are called to serve our fellow believers, but it also means that we are called to serve all people. And where it gets the toughest is when we realize that we are also called to love and serve our enemies. Those who not only dislike us, but frankly, they may even hate us or mean us ill. And it relates also to the current topic of the presence of God as well. We experience the presence of God more and more as our souls are shaped by our beliefs and shaped by the actions that express those beliefs. So what does unity look like? Or for that matter, what does the presence of God look like in the world? It looks like loving our enemies. When we decide to love our enemies, can our hearts be fully in it? Are we up for this? If so, how do we do it? When it comes to showing love to people who have harmed us or have things against us, how do we feel like we are not just zombies? Are we in danger of just going through the motions, moving around and doing this and that, but there's no real life behind the love we're pretending at? One time, 
years ago, a couple of my colleagues and I were talking about this very topic, how hard it is to live out what it means to love our enemies. And here are a couple of things they said, which I wrote down that day, because they struck me as being so on target. One of my friends said, loving others is about a holy life. It's not about a task. I understood him to mean that loving our enemies is a transformation of the heart just as much as it is a call to action. My other friend said, it's like the difference between being on a diet, on the one hand, and developing a smart eating as part of a lifestyle, on the other hand. So, I understood her to mean that instead of thinking of loving our enemies as a sacrifice or a self-denial that we make, we can come to understand that loving them is a blessing to all, including us, who are doing the loving. It's part of what it means when Jesus said he came so that we could have life abundantly. From my point of view, there is perhaps another a way that kind of a dichotomy appears when it comes to the topic of love. Because on the one hand, there is the love that we receive. But on the other hand, there is the love that we give. And I am very much in alignment with anyone who suggests that in order to have really any love to give, we must keep receiving the gift of love that comes from God. We can't dip from a well within us if the well is empty. Normally, loving the people we actually like is tough enough, right? But when it comes to loving our neighbors with whom we've had serious problems or who we might call enemies, this whole process becomes a whole lot harder, doesn't it? So, what if I challenged you to focus on something for the next 21 days? What if you decided that for the next three weeks, you would place your spirit in the receptive mode of daily accepting, and I'm talking about wholeheartedly receiving without reservation the love that comes from God for you. Bask in the fact that you are loved. Pray on it and stay with it. Feel the loving presence of God in your life daily and do that for three weeks straight. I intend to do that for the next three weeks and I invite you to do the same. So why engage in such a spiritual practice? Because it can serve as a reset button for us. It means that we can begin to release what has been keeping us from fully engaging in loving all with whom we have contact, not just some of them, not just the ones who are easier to love. I believe that our souls need to be reminded, and on a regular basis, that God loves us without condition, limit, or caveat. Something which really helps me is when I picture showing love to someone as giving away my love to them. 
meaning that I truly release my expectations of them reciprocating that love. I do not give love to them so that I get it back, or at least when I'm at my best, I don't. In this way, my loving kindness will truly be given. It won't be on loan. You see what I'm saying? We might ask, well, I realize that I need to love others, but how in the world can I learn to love my enemies? I think we would do well to begin to love our enemies by first realizing that very often in life, we ourselves have become our own worst enemy. Perhaps if we learn that the biggest battles that we fight are within our own soul, then maybe the physical enemy that we face begins to become less of an enemy after all. One important key to all of this is prayer. When we spend time in prayer for someone with whom we've had some problems in the past, or maybe in the present, as we continue to pray for them, it becomes more and more difficult for us to continue to have any disdain for them. Trust me. It's pretty hard to stay in a place of hating someone if you practice how to love them. We begin to see them as Christ sees them. Some lyrics from a musical group called The Water Boys come to mind. I'm going to look twice at you until I see Christ in you. I'm going to look twice at you until I see Christ in you, looking through the eyes of love. There is a huge difference when we begin to look through the eyes of love. We no longer see the world, our lives, God, other people the same way. We no longer have eyes that are blank and staring like a zombie. We have eyes that see more deeply, eyes that read the situation that is underneath all of it. We have a desire to know the person we're looking at. We begin to care about a person's story, and they matter to us. I speak not of physical eyes, but of spiritual ones. When it comes down to it, we are much more connected and much more the same than we realize. There does not need to be enmity among us. We come from the same source, and our hope and our faith is that we will be joined together again in even more fullness one day in heaven. We might as well start practicing right here and right now how to get along, right? Even though we live without knowing all the answers as to how to live the holy life to which we are called, some of it is a mystery, you know. Kind of like the Apostle Paul's image that here on earth we look through a mirror that is foggy and dim. But one day, one day, we will come to know fully just how joined together we are and have always been. We will know 
that we are one. And it is then that we will also realize the full presence of God. There's a quote from Thomas Merton, which I think is quite relevant here. My dear brothers, and we would add sisters, we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And we have to recover. What we have to recover is our original unity. I believe that Merton's words have a relevance for our topic today because I believe that if we become more and more aware of just how connected we really are, we will also become more and more aware of the constant and powerful presence of God in our own lives and in the world around us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.